1: This film is being touted as, ooh, so much queer representation. And I'm like, right. okay, sure. You know, we got some gay actors in it and they're actually playing gay characters, but like, I don't know. I waffle back and forth on this all the time. I realize I probably sound like a huge fucking hypocrite. But I just could have done with a little bit more richness in my queer representation here.
0: Well, and I will say, though, that a part of the part of the reason it's probably not here is because Barker wasn't involved like during the the the, the, like the creation of this film. So no, I did pull some quotes from uh, Megan Navarro's interview with David Bruckner and with Clive Barker. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what Bruckner says is, you know, he says, throughout the prep process, when I was putting the movie together, Clive and I would find moments to talk. Sometimes we'd reach out out of the blue. Sometimes he would call or I would call. One of us would have an idea. And so there was just this really awesome creative conversation during the prep process. But Mm. Barker replies with, "Um, it was also this respect in both directions. That makes it easier. But also I think both of us knew and David had all the solutions because I've seen his designs and I knew roughly what direction he was taking the movie. I realized this is a whole new ballgame, and my contributions had to be post-David. Right. That is to say, I could come at this respectfully understanding that David's internal structure to himself was to redirect the series in a fresh direction. So that's the thing. Is like, yeah, I mean, like, like, you know, David would talk to him and be like, hey, like, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? But at the end of the day, this is still Bruckner's movie, and Barker Mm -hmm. came in after the fact to be like, okay, like, let's, let me see what, what we're doing here.
1: Right. Yeah. And and again, for the people who are saying, oh, it's really disappointing that this movie isn't more like Barker's 1987 original. All you have to do is read that quote, right? Like, this is not Barker's film. And well, I think he he has signed off on it. He seems happy with a lot of the creative decisions that Bruckner makes. At the end of the day, this is Bruckner's and this is the 2022 version. It's difficult because it's hard to let go of the comparisons, but in certain ways, we have to be able to just take this film on its own merits.
0: Well, okay. So then that ties into why are we not making this a sexy film, right? Why are we not doing BDSM? Yeah. Why are we losing the leather? So this is Clive Barker's statement on that. Okay. I haven't seen all of them recently, to be honest, but the early movies were all about being addicted to sex and pain, not necessarily in that order. Where we were used to the fetishistic world, which was accessed in these movies. But back in the day, 30 years ago, the leather scene or the S&M scene worked. The stuff of the music videos. There was no Marilyn Manson, so you had to go, I think, into much, much more difficult territory. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the gag had already played several times and become public, and good God, Pinhead was on chat shows, I think he'd <laughs> lost a lot of his power. He'd become right. too familiar. You did a very smart thing. Uh, you said, okay, Oh, sorry, he's talking to Bruckner here. He goes, you did a very smart thing. You said, okay, this thing is familiar too, so how do we make it scary again? 35 years ago, I was accessing a danger, which was actually in the imagery back then, but it can never stay in the imagery if you're going to make 10 movies out of it. Eventually, it's just going to lose that. It's a tough thing, I think, to take a set of images that are potent because they're forbidden, which is what I was playing with, and reinvent them without totally violating the tone of it. And why it becomes exciting to me to pull these characters, these actors, into another set of circumstances, which we can really see play out at a larger level, especially when it comes to addiction, I've always felt there was a reason why you don't show the monster too often. But there's also a reason why you want, at some point, to be able to give the audience the full Monty. You want to be able to give (laughs) the audience a vision. Right. So, I mean... I get where he's coming from. And of course he has to say that anyway, because he's promoting the fucking movie. For but sure. Yeah. I get it. It's just, it. It is, it is sad that, yeah, we do lose the signature. I mean, the the, the, the first film's signature, like eroticism, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I, it is a struggle that, that was definitely one of the pieces I really went back and forth on, especially on that first watch. And I've been a little perplexed to see, a number of people saying that this is still gory this is still sexy this is still transgressive and i think i don't know that it is i don't think that this is necessarily a sexy or transgressive movie yeah and i don't think that that's a bad thing but it does feel like people are really desperate to suggest that it is playing in that same sandbox as the original and i don't think it is
0: i i i don't think it is either and i, I don't think it's a bad thing i mean I, this movie is its own beast. This is what Bruckner wanted to do with the franchise. So this is a reboot. Like this is the best definition yes. of a reboot that I can give. Uh-huh. And so take it for what it is. If I can completely divorce myself from the themes of the original film and Barker mm-hmm. source material, I am fine with this. And right. because and but again, like as you said before, it is pulling so much lore from Hellraiser 2 that it is giving me what I really like about this franchise.
1: Right. Yes, and we'll we'll get into that Leviathan stuff and all of the rules. <laughs> I do want to pull in one quote and one of the prep pieces that I did for this episode was to look specifically at queer authored reviews or editorials that were Mm -hmm. available we're recording this only a couple days after the film has come out so there will be more i'm sure but (laughs) um i'm gonna bring in nadine smith's piece for them called beyond pain and pleasure the new hellraiser challenges all human binaries Mm -hmm. and a lot of the pieces about jamie clayton's casting and what she is bringing to the role but um at the end of this piece one of the things that smith says is Hellraiser ultimately illustrates how larger societal discourses around sex have changed in the last 30 years. That should be 35 years, but it's fine. (laughs) In the 1980s, Hellraiser was very much about the politics of personal desire and the societal norms we violate in pursuit of ecstasy. Because, of course, that's why it was transgressive, right? People had never seen the BDSM scene. They weren't familiar with leather and all of this kind of like sexual taboo. So it was really boundary pushing. Yeah. And then Smith continues to say, but in the 2020s, the takeaway feels different. In this hellish world, sex is just a form of power, a commodity for the wealthy to buy and trade. So it's that shift, actually, from sex to power, because sex isn't that transgressive thing, right? Like we've moved beyond it -hmm. in the
0: 2020s. Which, which we should be happy about <laughs> if right. that's the case, because yay, <laughs> like sex is being more normalized with some people. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I, I so I, again, I, I get all the reasoning there. It, it's fine. Um, it's fine. It's just it's it is not Hellraiser. Uh, I'm sorry. It is not. <sighs> it's not Hellraiser eighty seven. Yes, it is Hellraiser. It's not Hellraiser. <laughs> <laughs>